But we're going to read from Isaiah chapter 9, and we're going to read verse 2 through 7, and then Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And now chapter 11, starting in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and little children shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the, Lord, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord can have a seat. <clears throat> well, the angel of the Lord appears to the shepherds and says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Millions will sing joy to the world this morning. But will they sing wonderful truths, but while they sing wonderful truths, I should say, many are ignorant of their meaning. And while they sing fantastic descriptions, many have little experience of this joy. We love the idea of joy to the world, We'd love to see joy to the world, we tell ourselves, but do they love where it comes from? Do they even know 
where it comes from. You see, you necessarily cannot have lasting, real joy if everyone has their own idea of what that joy is and where that joy comes from. The reality is, is that joy only comes from one place, from one place. There's only one place where you can obtain that joy. Only from one place can it pour forth. It is the kingdom of God which brings joy to the world. The kingdom of God brings joy to the world. But what is the kingdom of God? What is it? For our purpose this morning, I'm going to define the kingdom of God as the program of God in bringing the rule and realm of Jesus Christ in history. Let me say that again. The program of God in bringing the rule and realm of Jesus Christ in history. And I'm going to describe this kingdom in three aspects. I'm going to talk about God's prince over God's people in God's place. But first, I think it'd be helpful for us to start with our problem. You see, there was a reason the angel's news was great joy. The world had a great need, and God was giving a great Savior. It's helpful to remember how we got in this mess in the first place. We talked about this a little bit last week, but I'll repeat the key points for us this morning. In the beginning, God laid out a pattern. (laughs) While the Creator God is sovereign, and so He is, in one sense, always reigning over all things and over all events and over all people, yet from the beginning, He also has mediated His reign through others. He rules in His creation through creatures with whom He has covenanted. And He gives them sub-rulership, if you will, under Himself. And so in the garden, God told Adam, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion, have rulership here in this place that I've given to you to have rulership on my behalf. While God is sovereign over all creation, material and immaterial, yet within the material world of the earth, He had made a garden in which His people could dwell, and in which He dwelt with His people. Not only that, but He planned, and He plans to expand His mediated kingdom through those with whom He has covenanted to fill all of His creation. That's what he told Adam in the garden. Thus, Adam is to be fruitful, expanding God's people, and to cultivate the garden, subduing the earth with it, expanding the place of of this mediated kingdom, where God himself dwells in a unique way, walking with his people. God's people were to fill God's creation with God's rule. But Adam rebels. Adam rebels against his higher authority. He listens to Satan, thinking it will be a promotion, but in fact, it's actually a demotion. The kingdoms of this world become Satan's. And so in Luke chapter 4, 5 and 6, when Satan tempts Jesus, showing him the kingdoms of the world and offering him all this authority and all of this glory, if Jesus would just bow the knee to him, Satan is not lying about the kingdoms being his to give. 
want you to understand that. Satan, in that moment, is not lying. He is not being deceptive about the kingdoms of the world being his. They are his at that moment. If he was lying about it, it would render that temptation not a temptation at all. It wouldn't be a temptation. Jesus would just say, that's not yours. Jesus knows the truth. But it is a temptation. It is a real temptation. The lie is not in what he was offering. The lie is in how he is proposing Jesus obtain it. And so Jesus trusts God that the Father's will is not for Jesus to kneel to Satan in submission, but to take the kingdoms from Satan in victory. A victory which is won precisely where Adam was defeated, at the tree, at the tree. Adam takes, comes to the tree looking for a promotion, right, and gets demoted. Jesus comes to the tree humbling himself and gets exalted. Adam's disobedience not only affects mankind, but it affects all of creation's creation. Romans 8, 20 and 21 reminds us that our sin has corrupted nature itself. Uh, it says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You understand that nature itself is in bondage because of our sin. That at the fall, it's not just you and I and our hearts that are corrupted, but it is all of creation that now has this thread of corruption in it. Therefore, now, the need is not only the positive command of filling the earth but there is a redemptive need as well. You see, the, 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 the command at the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 doesn't go away. But added to that command is a need for redemption now. We need a new Adam who can first overcome God's enemies, then redeem God's people. And both by recreating and restoring the creation and filling it as God had initially commanded. Well, who can do that? Who could possibly do that? God's prince can. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, it said, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And in Isaiah 9, 6, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government, the dominion, the kingdom, the power shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It is Jesus who is the fulfillment of this and many other prophecies. It is Jesus who the angel declared, for unto you is born this day. It is this Jesus who came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Luke 4, 43, Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. For the purpose of what? To preach the good news, the kingdom of God. And this is not a someday kingdom, guys. It's not a someday kingdom, but it was at hand 
as Jesus walked the earth because the king was at hand. Jesus can say in Luke 17, 21, that, quote, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you because Jesus, the king, was right there walking with them. And when Jesus is accused of casting out demons by the devil, he declares to the Pharisees, but if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And the point of that passage is precisely that he is not casting out demons by the devil, but that he is casting out demons by the Spirit of God. Thus, therefore, the kingdom of God in Jesus had come upon them 2,000 years ago. Jesus came, as 1 John 1, 8 says, to destroy the works of of the devil. Jesus doesn't, does, it doesn't say Jesus will come to destroy the works of the devil. He says, it says Jesus did come to destroy the works of the devil. Everywhere that Jesus goes in his earthly ministry, he demonstrates that he is binding that strong man, Satan. The demons flee before him, and even the forces of nature must obey him. Everything that has gone out of control by sin, he subdues, subdue the earth. Christ subdues it, even in its sinfully corrupted state. Here's my point. There can only be joy to the world to the extent that the enemies of the Creator, the Creator who made all things good, that His enemies are subdued. Wherever the enemies of the Creator are rebelling, there will necessarily not be peace. There will necessarily not be joy. It cannot be merely redeeming God's people out of a dying world because Isaiah 9 and 2 verse, uh, verses 2 and 3 are impossible without Isaiah 9 verse 4. How does light shine on those who walk in darkness? How is the nation multiplied and joy increased? How, how does peace How is there never any end of its increase? How, in verse 5 of Isaiah chapter 9, how is it that uh, the garments are rolled up and burned because they're not needed anymore? The warrior's garments are not needed anymore because there's peace everywhere because his government is so good. How is that possible? Because Christ the King defeated the enemies. Because he overcomes them. That's how must be. The child must take the government on his shoulders, and that government must increase, and he must be on the throne of David, which is the throne of the Lord, forever, forever, and never is there a break in it. And this is precisely what we see described in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. By the cross and the resurrection, it says, quote, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them in Him. We see the good confession in 1 Timothy chapter 6 is not only that Jesus is Savior, but it is precisely that Jesus is King. That's the good confession. And what happened to this king? He doesn't only die and rise. He ascends to his throne. 
In Daniel 7, it tells us, And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Now, this is not a coming on the clouds to earth. Recognize what it says. It says it's a coming on the clouds to the Ancient of Days. This is Christ coming into the throne room of God. Coming into the throne room where the Father is enthroned and receiving his kingdom, having done all the work he needed to do. And then what does it say? And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. It can't be destroyed. Friends, he's already received this kingdom. He already sits there. He's already come into that room to the Ancient of Days and received it. It's already happened. Hebrews 10, 12, and 13 say, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It's done. He's done it. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Do you understand? He will sit there until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. The scriptures can't be more clear. Revelation eleven fifteen says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign how long? Forever and ever. There is no end to his reign. Once he takes that throne, it will never be taken from him. He will sit there until, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, he hands it back over to the Father. There is no intervening period. There is no nothing else. It is his period. It only grows. And we know that this refers to Christ in Revelation eleven fifteen. 15. You might say, well, well, maybe that refers to something else, something that hasn't happened yet. Well, we know that it actually refers to Christ's work in his first advent because in Revelation 10, 7, right before, it timestamps it. It timestamps this as happening, quote, in the days which the mystery of God would be fulfilled. And the mystery of God, or the mystery of Christ, the mystery of the gospel, all throughout Scripture, all throughout the New Testament, only refers to one thing. It refers to Christ's first coming and the revelation of God's plan from the beginning of the world in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. It refers to the incarnation. He has taken the kingdoms of the world from Satan in principle. He is the rightful king, and as the first fruits, his resurrection power is now being flexed in the world through the Spirit. But there is progress that needs to be made. Revelation chapter 11 continues, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. There's progress still that needs to happen. This is the work Christ is doing right now, and how long will he be at this work? 1 Corinthians 15, 25, for he must reign, again, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. It says that in Psalm, I think, 110. It says that right here in 1 Corinthians 15. It says it in Hebrews. It says it all over the place. Do not miss it. Do not miss his kingdom. God's people, though, the kingdom of God overcomes his enemies, and also it redeems his people. 
As Jesus himself said in John chapter uh, 12, 11, uh, 31 to 32, it says this, Now is the judgment of the world. It's Jesus on the earth speaking of his first coming. He says, Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now. In Jesus' first coming, Jesus is saying. This is Christ's words. Now he will be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus must overcome his enemies in order that he redeems a people for himself. Indeed, Colossians chapter 1, 13 tells us, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We can right now, right now in Christ, be transferred from the domain of darkness into his kingdom because his kingdom is now, he sits on the throne, it, it is forever and ever. It's only because he reigns. It's only because he reigns that we can have this redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And this redemption is expanded to all people, it says. God's kingdom is no longer isolated to one people group. It's no longer isolated to just Israel. He, he no longer has, his kingdom is no longer just one people in this little promised land. His kingdom is all peoples and all the world. He has the kingdoms of the world to people who walked in darkness for centuries. They now see a great light, just as the prophets said. The nation is multiplied, and they rejoice as with joy at the harvest, because indeed, this is a great harvest of people to the Lord. But these people aren't only saved and transferred into this kingdom, but they reign with Christ. Understand, we reign with Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2 is that we reign with Christ right now. Right now. And it's not, it's not us going up to his throne to reign someday. We reign right now and it's his throne that comes here. We wait for him to come to us, Philippians chapter 3 says. You understand? This is, how the, this is the picture that the Bible paints for us. All right. I'm getting off topic. It's already a long enough sermon. Okay, when Acts opens up, uh, let, me, let me say this. The kingdom of God is achieved through His church by the Word and Spirit. We reign with Him, and we are instruments for expanding His kingdom. The kingdom of God is achieved through His church by the Word and by the Spirit. When Acts opens up, Luke writes of his gospel. Acts 1.1. Luke writes of his gospel that it was all Jesus began to do and teach. I love that. It's all he began to do and teach. Why? Because the book of Acts is what Jesus continues to do and teach through his spirit and through his church. And so we are given the great commission at the beginning of Acts. Christ, who has all authority, is with us through the spirit, he says, to the very end, and we are to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to submit to all Christ's commands. This is the gospel of the kingdom, friends. In fact, this is the very uh, a gospel that Paul preaches in Acts 28, at the very end of the book of Acts, chapter, Acts 28, 23, it says this, From morning till evening, Paul expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus. It is both the kingdom of God that he declares and also Christ that he's convincing them of. 
Therefore, we must also be preaching not only that Jesus is Messiah, but that with him is now his kingdom. It is by the preaching of this word that God does his work. You see, the word made, was made flesh in the person of Jesus, and that same word is in the mouth, the mouth of his body. His ambassadors, as Isaiah eleven four 4 says, he shall strike the earth with the rod of what? The rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. He does it through his word. And in Romans chapter 16, it says that Christ is crushing Satan right now under the feet, his feet. The feet of his body, it says, under the church, under us. Under us, church, we reign with him. And the apostles testify in Acts chapter 5, 29-32, they say this, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. You understand, they declare repentance and forgiveness of sins that is found only in Christ who died and also was raised again, but also who must be obeyed. Notice that. Not just forgiveness of sins because Christ died and rose again, but also he must be obeyed. See, it's fashionable today. It's fashionable today to say that Christ must be both Lord and Savior of our lives, but then only to preach Jesus to the world as Savior. Oh, yes, we'll say, oh, yeah, of course, of course, of course, of course, he needs to be, he just needs to be Savior and Lord. But, but when you're preaching, when you're declaring the gospel, when you're telling the world about Christ, we should only talk about him being uh, the Savior. We shouldn't talk about that other part. I mean, it needs to happen, but, you know, at, Somehow, maybe, perhaps, people will just get it by osmosis or something. I don't know how, how we expect this to happen. But Jesus is Savior and Lord of everything. We don't make Him such. He is such already. Unless we declare this, then how will the peoples know that He is the only true Savior and Lord of their lives? If we don't declare it, if God says, I work through my church by my spirit as the word is proclaimed, and if we don't declare to people that Jesus is not only just Savior, but he's Lord as well, how will they know? And if joy comes to the world through God's kingdom, through obedience to him, to, to, from, from obedience to the king, then how will they know how to receive that joy? To do what brings joy to themselves and to the world. If we refuse to tell people they must submit to Christ the king. How, how will it happen? Friends, a half-truth told as the whole truth is functionally an untruth. You see, the kingdom of God is achieved spiritually and manifested visibly. In Isaiah eleven two. 2, it says, we see that the Spirit rests on Christ, and it is by the power of the Spirit that all of these things are brought about. In John 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, if you remember the story, 
He tells Nicodemus that no one can enter nor even see the kingdom of God if they have not been born again. Now, listen, that's not to say that the effects of the kingdom are invisible to us, but that the reality of what it is and how it comes can only be discerned through the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, you won't understand, you won't see, you'll, you'll make up whatever reason for why it is the way it is. This should be obvious since King Jesus himself is standing right there. He's standing right there, casting out demons, healing people, and people still miss it. It should be obvious to us then that as we declare these truths, that some people will just miss it, that it's spiritually discerned. Therefore, Jesus says in Luke chapter 17 that the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. It doesn't work like human kingdoms. An army doesn't march in with the sword. Rather, when the sword of the word goes out, it pierces men's hearts and does an internal work which comes imperceptibly. But the effects of that work, the effects of that work are visible to those who understand what God has done and what He is doing. Friends, there is no such thing as the privatization of the gospel. It's not possible. It's not possible. As James says, faith that, that, doesn't, that isn't lived out, that faith that isn't active, faith that doesn't result in, in, in obedience, is no, it's no real faith at all. It would, it would change the way we live. It has social and cultural ramifications. As, as people are changed by the gospel, it changes the way things are in the world. It must. And so, in John 18, 36, when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, he is not meaning to say his kingdom is located somewhere else, but he tells us exactly what he means right in the next sentence. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Well, how does his kingdom come? All we have to do is keep reading again. Verse 37, you say that I'm king, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Church, we are the king's mouthpiece to declare that truth. When we demote ourselves and glorify him, the Spirit does work. I like this quote that I stole from Doug Wilson. He says this, Jesus' kingdom operates on the foundation of sacrifice instead of on the foundation of grasping, which is characteristic of the kingdoms of men. You understand that it's not of this world. The kingdom, God's, Christ's kingdom is not of this world because Christ's kingdom doesn't grasp at things like the kingdoms of men Christ's kingdom doesn't need to because Christ is on the throne. We simply declare it, and the Spirit is effectual to do the work, the work exactly that God intends to do. And thus, Jesus' kingdom operates on the foundation of sacrifice. We lay down our lives for Christ and for His kingdom, and God exalts us just as He exalted Christ.
And so this kingdom is not less than Christ reigning in the hearts of believers, but is much, much more than that. And well, what's, what's the place of it? Well, the, the place uh, is this. The kingdom of God is achieved gradually to the ends of the earth. All over the place, this kingdom is demonstrated to be, to be coming gradually. We're given some images of it in Christ's parables, um, uh, particularly in Luke chapter 13. It works internally as leaven until it works through the whole dough, and its fruit is clearly seen. It starts like a mustard seed until it gradually grows into a big tree so big that the birds can nest in it. In Daniel 2, it is a kingdom that destroys the kingdoms of men and then grows gradually to fill the earth. Verse 34 tells us of Daniel 2, As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. It is no worldly, it is no man uh, uh, kingdom here. It is God's kingdom. And the stone was cut out by no human hand. It did not come of this earth, uh, but it came to this earth. And it struck the image, it says, of its feet of, of iron and clay, and it broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the earth. All of these great kingdoms that Daniel 2 refers to, they're gone. Where's, where's the Roman Empire? It's gone. It's not here anymore. It's blown away like chaff. But Jesus' kingdom remains and has grown for 2,000 years. Daniel goes on to say this in verse 44, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Friends, if you're in Christ, you stand in that kingdom. You stand in that kingdom. You not only stand in that kingdom, but as I said before, you sit with Christ reigning in that kingdom. I know, I know that there are those who would disagree, maybe with my understanding of this, but I say no, <laughs> I see no way around the clear and repeated statements in Scripture. This kingdom is certainly already established in Christ's first advent. It will stand forever. All that's left is for it to fill the earth. That's all that's left. And some say that it won't be that it won't be anything that could be considered filling the whole earth until Christ returns. And listen, if that's how it ends up happening, if that's the way uh, that, I, that if I'm wrong on this next point, and that's the way it happens, then praise be to God, right? He can do it however He wants. But I just don't think that's what the Bible portrays to us. even more may disagree with me on this next point, but I think we have to reason, we, I think we have reason to hope that this filling, whatever it means, will happen prior to Christ's return. I'll give you some examples. We don't have time to go into all of them in depth, but perhaps you can write them down and you can read these passages for yourself and consider them. First, the passage we read earlier from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, especially verses 6 
uh, through 10, where it talks about the wolf dwelling with the lamb and the leopard lying down with the young goat and so on and so forth. And the little child is leading them all these, these great descriptions of peace being on the earth. That peace, not uh, uh, interestingly, that, that, that in Jesus' birth is declared to the world, right? How could the earth be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea? How could that be? Verse 10 says, in that day. You see that? Verse 10. It says, in that day, this will happen. In that day, verses 1 through 10 will be unleashed on the earth. And the root of, Je- the root of um, Jesse, that is Jesus, will stand, it says, as a signal. Now, some might say, well, well, sure. When Jesus returns, then Jesus will stand as a signal to the nations and all of these things will happen. Sure, that's, that's what it means. Well, hold on a second. Because this passage is quoted in Romans 15, 12. And so if Paul is quoting this passage in Romans 15, 12, then Paul, I would say, is a better commentary on this passage than I'm a commentary on this passage, right? Or you are a commentary on this passage. I think we can all agree with that. And how does Paul use this verse? Well, Paul uses it to justify and describe his ministry in his life to the Gentiles right then after Jesus' first coming. He uses it to describe as a, uh, as a description of the consequence of Christ's first coming, not his second coming. Christ has already sta- stood as a signal to the nations, Paul says. And so how are we to take Isaiah 11, 1 to 10 but as being fulfilled in Christ's first coming, because that's how Paul took it. Or consider with me Isaiah 42, verse 1 through 6, which declares the work of the Spirit to bring forth justice to the nations, and that by His grace, verse 2, He will bring it forth. Not a bruised reed, it says, not a smoldering wick will be snuffed out. And He will not grow faint, it says, or weary of this work, or discouraged by it, until, it says, he has established justice in the earth. And all of this is quoted by Jesus in Matthew 12 as being fulfilled, Jesus' words, in his first coming. And so how am I supposed to take Isaiah chapter 42? If Jesus says, this is fulfilled in my first coming, how am I supposed to take it but as fulfilled in his first coming? And if everywhere, as I went through, as we preached through Luke, everywhere that Isaiah is quoted, every single time it's fulfilled in his first coming, how am I to take all of the book of Isaiah? But it's being fulfilled in Jesus' first coming. If every single, every single one, without fail, that's referred to is fulfilled in Jesus' first coming. And so that when we go back and you read the book of Isaiah, it gives you a whole different look, doesn't it? You start to think, wow, somehow, whatever this means, Christ fulfilled it already. This is already happening. Christ is doing it just as he is continuing to do the work, Acts 1, 1. Just as he's continuing to, continuing to do the work through the Spirit and the church, he's doing this now, now, through us. Or take Ezekiel chapter 47, 1 through 12, in which we see this, this temple, this picture of this temple of the Lord being described, which we know from the New Testament is uh, the church that he is building as his temple now. And it says that from under the doorway of this temple flows a river, and everywhere through Scripture, wherever there's a river flowing, it's, it's a picture of the Holy Spirit going out and doing work. And that river, it says, starts as a trickle. And then as Ezekiel continues to go, it gets deeper, and it's ankle deep, and it's knee deep, 
and it's hip deep, and it gets deeper, and it gets deeper until he says he can't, he can't get across it. It's too deep. It, it flows out everywhere. fills the earth. And, and, he, and he describes it as making the waters of the sea fresh, the waters of the Dead Sea fresh. That's how transformative this river is. And the trees grow along it, and the fruit of these trees are food, and the leaves, it says, are for healing. The kingdom of God pours forth by the Spirit through the work of the church gradually to the ends of the earth. The kingdom is God's reign in the hearts of believers, but that is not all it is. When those believers submit every area of their life to Christ the King, there is a Holy Spirit-empowered social and cultural impact, one that affects even unbelievers, one that affects even the inanimate creation. Listen, I want you to know one, one last thing here about the kingdom of God. Lest we get the wrong impression, the kingdom of God, however, is achieved finally when Christ returns. Oh yes, it, I hold, I believe, and I think scripture presents that the kingdom of God will gradually grow until it fills the earth, but, but it will not be finally achieved, fully achieved until Christ returns. We hear things like, as I said earlier, heaven is our home or our citizenship is in heaven. But what does that mean? Most Christians think, I think most Christians think of heaven somewhere far off as their final destination. That, that someday I'll be in heaven. But that's not what the Bible presents to us. Heaven in that sense is just a pass-through. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's wonderful, we'll be with the Lord. The Bible describes it as Abraham's bosom, as a paradise, but it is a pass-through. It is a temporary dwelling. As I said, Paul in Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body. You understand that what we are awaiting is not some sort of disembodied, somewhere else heaven kind of floating around sort of thing, but, but what we are awaiting is Christ raised from the dead in a glorious body, in a glorious physical body, coming back to an earth that he is recreating, that he is vanquishing finally and completely from sin, glorifying us in physical bodies as well, and living forever in his presence, just as he walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. In fact, better. See, that, that day, that day will not just be good or very good, but it will be glory. See, having your citizenship, citizenship in heaven doesn't mean that you belong there but are stuck here. It means that this world right now, uh, as it is, isn't all there is, and you live understanding that reality, that, there's, that, the, that the things of this world are, are nothing compared to what will be. That we can lay them down and we can give them up because we have so much greater of an inheritance in Christ. Paul doesn't say, we are awaiting to go there. We are awaiting the king to come here. We know this because Romans 8 all right, well, the, 
Yeah, we know this because Romans 8, Paul ties his, this redemption of our bodies with the redemption of the whole creation. Listen, he says this, for we know that the whole creation, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We have the first fruits. We have a foretaste of what it will be, but it is not the full harvest. The harvest is still coming in. And that same reality is true, that's true for us in the redemption of our bodies, is true for the redemption of the whole creation, Paul says. This is critical because God's solution must be to fix the whole problem, not merely remove it. He must fix it. We do not discard our bodies. Adam had a body. We need a restored body, a glorified one. And here the solution for nature is described similarly. The redemption of our bodies, the revealing of our glorification is of a similar kind as the redeeming and glorifying of that creation. John the Baptist tells us in Luke 3, 15 and 16 that Christ will do this work by the Spirit and fire, which are not two different methods, but one. That which does it and the metaphor for what that Spirit does. So we must understand the fire of this last day as describing the refining of fire, the refining fire of the Spirit, but to completion. The same refining fire that refines our faith right now and sanctifies us, one day it will be total. We will be sanctified completely. The work will be finished. We no longer will toil with sin in this world. We no longer will, will sacrifice the joy that Christ has given to us on the altar of Baal, on the altar of our sin. But Christ will do away with it by the Spirit. It is not, what is, not, what is being described is not utter destruction, it's utter glorification. As more and more people are submitted to Christ by the Spirit and as the, as the works that they perform and the institutions they build are, are done to His will, the cultural mandate that's given uh, in Genesis is fulfilled by the new Adam through His body, the church, and in His place, the world. And then He comes and He puts the finishing touch on it, getting rid of death. God alone can satisfy the soul, friends. God alone, our Creator, is the only thing, the only one, who can satisfy the soul. True joy can only be found in Him. Some seek to find joy by limiting God. Christians and atheists alike don't want to think of God as judge. They don't want to think of God as sovereign. They find the idea of submission to Him to be unappealing. And so they limit their idea of God just to the parts that they like, which for some turns out to be making God out to be themselves. But none of it works. As J. Gresham Machen writes in one of his books, such a, ma- such a God may deliver us from the fear of hell, but his heaven, if he has any, is full of sin. No, this is no God. That is no God at all, but more of the lie of the garden. More sin, more death, less joy, less life. The only way forward is to submit to the new king. This is not bad news. It is 
the best news, for he won this victory by his own blood shed for us, and he advances this victory by his own spirit given to us, and he finishes this victory by his judgment over us. He came to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found, and this is joy to the world. Let me pray.